Voters in Chicago reject Mayor Lori Lightfoot's bid for re-election amid increasing crime rates. Two of her challengers are headed to a runoff. It's Wednesday, March 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the search for survivors after a train collision in Greece. At least 36 people are dead. Also, why there could be changes to the legal challenges of the Voting Rights Act. If that process is taken off the table, then the protection of minority voting rights will be much weaker after that case than it was before. And this hour, celebrating the man behind 25 years of poetry jam nights at the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge. This is... 25 years dissertation in the making, underground yeah. style. Yeah. Berkeley College of Music needs to give this man a doctor. Yeah. Sun this morning, clouds this afternoon in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A new House panel held a primetime hearing last night to examine security and economic threats posed by China. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports lawmakers heard from several witnesses. Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher, the chair of the committee, says the dynamic between the U.S. and China is complicated and needs an urgent focus. We may call this a strategic competition, but it's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. Over three hours, two former Trump national security officials, the head of a manufacturing association, and a human rights activist detailed how the Chinese Communist Party has gained power over global markets and endangered American interests in the region. Lawmakers vowed to take action to reduce threats and boost U.S. competition. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is warning China not to provide Russia with weapons as Moscow continues to attack Ukraine. Blinken is headed for India at a meeting of foreign ministers of G20 nations. Blinken is not scheduled to meet either China or Russia's foreign ministers. There has been a shocking and deadly train crash in Greece. A freight train and a passenger train collided head-on last night while traveling at top speed. Associated Press reporter Derek Gatopoulos says at least 36 people have been killed. The freight train was carrying very heavy cargo. It was construction material. The impact was incredible. It sent the other train basically flying up into the air, landing, twisting and catching fire. And they're still pulling out bodies from the wreckage after they've managed to lift the heavy parts of the front part of the train by a crane. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. In a split vote, advisors to the Food and Drug Administration have found that the first vaccine for protecting older adults against RSV appears safe and effective. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The FDA advisors voted 7-4 to four that the vaccine made by Pfizer appears safe and effective at protecting people ages 60 and older against the common respiratory virus. Those voting against the vaccine expressed concern about some safety issues, including the possibility that the shot may increase the risk for a rare neurological complication known as Guillain-Barre syndrome. They also argued the company had not provided strong evidence that the vaccine works well. The same advisors will consider another RSV vaccine made by GSK on Wednesday. The FDA will decide by May whether to approve them. Rob Stein, NPR News. There will be a runoff election in April for Chicago mayor. It will feature the top vote-getting candidates from yesterday's election, Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. Chicago voters denied incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot a second term. This is NPR. 
From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Beginning today, what you pay for the natural gas you use to heat your home or take a hot shower will decrease somewhat. WBR's Dave Faniff explains. Under federal law, natural gas is sold in a competitive market, and Massachusetts gas companies have to pass that cost on to customers without profit. That means when supply rates drop, so does the cost to consumers. State Department of Public Utilities says a typical Eversource and National Grid gas customer will see their monthly payments drop by about 10 percent. The last decrease was a month ago when the prices dropped between 4 and 5 percent. Natural gas customers saw their rates jump about 20 percent statewide when the winter rates went into effect in November. Today's decrease is because of updated forecasts on customer usage and a drop in natural gas prices on the open market this winter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Massachusetts is teaming up with several neighboring states in an effort to bring technology manufacturing companies to the area. It's called the Northeast Microelectronics Coalition. It's made up of more than 85 groups from New England, New York, and New Jersey. The group wants to tap into federal funding for the project. Christine Nolan is with the group MassTech Collaborative. What we're looking to do with this particular proposal is form a regional hub where we can focus on the technologies that are extremely important to the DOD. And these are systems like 5G, 6G, AI, and quantum. Governor Moore Healy promises to match the federal funding if the project wins approval. The state inspector general wants Boston Public Schools to get its buses to school on time. That comes as BPS plans to extend its bus contract with the company Transdev. The state inspector general tells the Boston Globe he's worried Transdev won't improve if the contract is renewed. The contract needs to be ratified by the school committee before it can take effect. UMass Memorial Health in Worcester says it will close its COVID testing site at the end of the month. It's located at the Mercantile Center on Front Street. The hospital says with the number of COVID cases slowing, demand for testing at the site is dropping. Nearly 100 people are set to become U.S. citizens today at the JFK Library in Dorchester. This is the first naturalization ceremony the library has hosted since the pandemic started. Rachel Floor is the executive director of the library. She says it's meaningful for the library to play a small part in a large moment of someone's life. It's such a reminder to all of us, even those who were born here, that citizenship is a privilege. You know, Many of us have not taken that oath. It's such a good reminder of um, the intentional, conscious effort that each of us need to make daily to live up to our own responsibilities as citizens. Flora says people from 49 different countries will become citizens today. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Bruins' Charlie McAvoy scored with seconds left in overtime last night. The Bees beat the Flames 4-3 to in Calgary. The Bruins will return home tomorrow to skate with the Buffalo Sabres. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to play the Cleveland Cavaliers. At spring training in Florida last night, the Red Sox beat the Marlins 7-2. The Sox will play the Astros this afternoon. Sunny to start today, but then turning cloudy. Temperatures will get to the lower 40s. Cloudy tonight with some rain or snow showers. It'll get into the 30s. Rain ends in the morning. It'll turn cloudy and be warm with a high near 50. We could get some snow Friday night into Saturday. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 7.08. 
WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We've heard a lot about the United States shifting its approach to China. So how does that look from China? The divide between the world's two largest economies was on display last night. A special committee in the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing on the threat of China. The committee was created to showcase exactly that message. About 7,000 miles away, Chinese officials were listening, and so was NPR's John Ruich, who's covered China for many years. Hey there, John. Good morning. So I'm, I'm imagining not a lot of people in China had access to this congressional hearing uh, very early in the morning, China time. But how closely have people been following the decline in relations with the United States over years? Yeah, that's a safe bet. This issue has not gotten a ton of coverage. But of course, China-U.S. relations get a lot of coverage in state media. It's a, it's a topic of discussion. Uh, Beijing, the state, of course, claims that Washington uh, is to blame for it all. You know, as everywhere, there's a wide range of views, right? I've heard people quietly critical of their own government here uh, for the foreign policy they've adopted. I've certainly had conversations with people who are convinced that the U.S. is, is out to thwart China. You know, then comes this hearing, right, which showcases this popular view in the U.S. that Americans got China wrong over the decades, thinking it would become more liberal as its economy became more integrated with the world, that Beijing took advantage of that and wants to overturn the world order as we know it. And so now it's time to change our approach. Here's Mike Gallagher, the Republican from Wisconsin who chairs the committee. We must act with a sense of urgency. I believe our policy over the next 10 years will set the stage for the next 100. You know, there were two protesters who disrupted the hearing, holding up signs that said China is not our enemy. That got coverage here, actually. The Global Times, which is a hawkish uh, news outlet, covered that. Oh, very interesting. Well, we heard the chairman of that committee as well as the top Democrat on the committee on NPR yesterday. So they have made their bipartisan case. How does the Chinese government respond? The foreign ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning addressed this in her daily briefing today. She said that the U.S. Uh, people the, and, and government agencies need to, quote, abandon their ideological bias and Cold War zero-sum thinking when it comes to China, to stop thinking of China as a threat, to stop slandering the Communist Party of China. You know, she also blasted the U.S. on another issue that's popped up yet again. There are reports this week that the Department of Energy believes, albeit with low confidence, that the COVID pandemic was likely caused by a lab leak here in China. And then FBI Director Christopher Wray repeated his belief that that's the case. Uh, Mounting said that the U.S. was just stirring all, thing, all these things up for political reasons and that doing so would lower America's credibility. And she urged Americans to respect science and the facts, uh, which is something that critics could argue China has at times fallen short on with the virus, too. I'm, I'm interested that the foreign ministry spokesperson said stop slandering the Chinese Communist Party. Since the U.S. officials we've talked with have emphasized they are criticizing not China broadly, but the party that rules it. Among other things, aren't U.S. officials concerned about China's Communist Party, as they would put it, allying with Russia? Yep, they are. And in fact, the, the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, is in Beijing this week. He's a close ally of Vladimir Putin. You know, China also has very close relations with Belarus that have increased, have gotten deeper over the years, and appear to be deepening with this meeting. Uh, Lukashenko reportedly met Chinese Premier Li Keqiang uh, and will meet Xi Jinping. 
you know, China says, you know, there's been these accusations that China is considering furnishing deadly weapons to Russia, right? China calls those smears against it. China says it stands for peace and that la at last we put out this set of principles for resolving the war in Ukraine. Uh, but this visit by Lukashenko and a visit by China a couple weeks ago by Iran's president have raised some eyebrows. NPR's John Ruich, thanks for your insights. You're welcome. China has been buying some U.S. farmland, and some members of Congress say that's a threat to national security. One of them is Representative Dusty Johnson, a Republican from South Dakota and a member of the select committee that convened last night. He joins us by Skype early. Congressman, welcome. Good morning. Hope you got at least a little bit of sleep. Um, <laughs> are there complex views about China in your state, people who view China as a market? Yeah, yes, of course, there are complex views. It's a complex situation. China buys a powerful lot of South Dakota soybeans. And so there are South Dakotans who view China as a market. But I'll be honest, Steve, in, in recent years, I think there has been a broadening awareness of the fact that China is uh, a strategic, uh, strategic competitor, no doubt. Why would it be a problem if Chinese firms connected to the government, we presume, but Chinese businesses of some kind buy up U.S. farmland? Well, food security is national security. And I think we've seen that Russia was able to uh, exercise undue influence over Europe because they supplied them so much natural gas. And similarly, if China has control over food supplies in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, even in North America, that can have uh, that can give them more power, more co more coercive power uh, over the globe. That is not something that serves peace and security. You're talking in just literal terms that they might decide who to sell food to and it might not be the United States. Is that right? Absolutely. And this is no small amount of food we're talking about. In recent years, the Chinese Communist Party has increased their holdings of foreign farmland. So this is farmland outside of Chicago, of China by a thousand percent. They own 1,300 agricultural processing facilities outside of China, and that number is growing rapidly. Um, inside the United States, they've also bought some land, although it amounts to less than 1% of all foreign-owned land in the U.S. So it's not 1% of land, it's 1% of all foreign-owned land in the United States is Chinese. Do you really need to ban that activity? It is a very small piece of the pie right now in America. But one thing we heard from our witnesses last night was that you simply uh, is that we cannot give the Chinese Communist Party coercive power over our economy. And they have talked about how we have let that happen in batteries. We've let that happen in renewable technologies. We have that let that happen in rare earth minerals. We have let that happen in steel. 57% of the world's steel is made in China. 4% in America. And so food is one area where we continue to maintain a competitive advantage. We certainly should not let that slip away. I should just be clear on one thing, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. You, you, you indicate that China makes a whole lot more steel than the United States at this point, but the United States still makes most of its own steel for our own market, right? It does, of course, uh, when you have, uh, you know, a, a hot economy, things you want to ramp up, particularly from a national security perspective, you do want to have lots of your own domestic production. And I think uh, America would like to go back to the days where we were a steel exporter. Okay, so getting back to your bill here, which involves farmland or real estate generally, I suppose, what is the rule that you would put in place regarding China? 
it would blacklist, uh, and not just China, also North Korea, Iran, Russia, uh, state-sponsored companies or uh, key partners of those countries, uh, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. It would ha- it would blacklist them from purchasing either American farmland or American agricultural processing facilities. Uh, blacklist them. I'm curious if one of the side effects would be a decrease in the value of that land. Fewer customers for it. Well, to your point earlier, Steve, right now, the Chinese Communist Party is not a major player in farmland in this country. But, you know, we did see that they purchased a fair amount of farmland near the Grand Forks Air Force Base. We had General McMaster tell us last night that it is kind of surprising, uh, perhaps not for people who are paying attention to China, I guess. But it is interesting how much farmland China has purchased near key military installations. So their purchases are, as of yet, not enough, I think, to drive market value. They are enough to be concerning to people who pay attention to national security. Sounds like you feel like they might be growing a little more than food on that land. Well, that was certainly what our experts suggested last night. And and you alluded to the bipartisanship, and I think it's good. It was remarkable how bipartisan last night's hearing was. Congressman, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Representative Dusty Johnson is a member of the House Select Committee on China. Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her bid for re-election yesterday. She was the city's first black woman mayor, its first openly gay mayor, and she swept when she won four years ago. Now the top two candidates head to a runoff election, and Lightfoot isn't one of them. From member station WBEZ in Chicago, Tessa Weinberg reports. A tearful Lightfoot took to the stage Tuesday night, flanked by her wife Amy, amid cheers of We Love Lori. Four years ago, Lightfoot made history as the first black woman and openly gay mayor to lead Chicago. But last night, the incumbent mayor came in third place, well short of the vote she needed in what was a crowded nine-way race. Her opponent slammed Lightfoot for a rise in crime and her tough negotiating style. But as she conceded, Lightfoot talked of her accomplishments that included bolstering development in disinvested neighborhoods, getting guns off the streets, and shaking up the status quo of City Hall. And you better believe I am grateful that we took on the machine and entrenched forces that held this city back for far too long. Now, the city faces a stark choice between the top two vote-getters who will square off in a runoff election. Paul Vallis took the lead Tuesday night. He's the former CEO of the city school district, and he's drawn the support of the city's business community. Like most cities, Chicago saw a spike in crime amid the pandemic. Vallis is endorsed by Chicago's police union and has focused his campaign almost exclusively on promises to make the city safer. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. Vallis will go head to head against Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner. He's aligned with the powerful Chicago Teachers Union and stands far to the left of Vallis's more conservative positions. The challenges that are ahead of us, Chicago, we can defeat this structural inequality. We have built a multiracial, multigenerational movement from one end of the city to the other end of the city. We can build a better, stronger, safer Chicago, and tonight is just the beginning. The runoff election is April 4th. For NPR News, I'm Tessa Weinberg in Chicago.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Pakistan's economy is on the verge of collapse as the U.N. warns more than 5 million people are close to famine. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way, too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Clouds move in throughout the day today, and we'll have a high near 42, a low around 34 tonight, and there's a slight chance of rain and snow early in the evening, then rain overnight. Tomorrow, rain likely in the morning, otherwise cloudy with a high near 48. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Pakistan faces an economic crisis so dire it risks default on its debt. Catastrophic floods last year submerged nearly a third of the country. Food and fuel prices soared and are now beyond the means of many people. As NPR's Dia Hadid reports, that's straining a Pakistani tradition of feeding the hungry just when it's needed the most. A dervish, with bells strapped to his chest, salutes the shrine of a Sufi saint buried in the capital Islamabad. The dervish Ghulam Muhammad says more people need to support the poor the way this shrine does. In one hall at the sprawling shrine complex, a cook dishes up greasy rice, a waitress slaps down the plates, and one woman argues that she didn't get enough. 52-year-old Salima Bibi hovers at the entrance, hoping the waitress inside will forget she's already been served once. She's holding a plastic bag in one hand. She shows it to me and my colleague, Abdul Sattar. Salima Bibi says if she's lucky, she'll fill it with free rice for her kids. She can't afford to bring them here. Bus rides are now too expensive. But she's already got a meal. She stuffed that in a different plastic bag that she's tucked under her draping headscarf. She was meant to eat it, but couldn't. I'm a mother. How I can eat without my kids? Salima Bibi isn't alone. A boy in tattered clothes sells plastic bags to shrine visitors 
precisely for this. A little girl clutches a tiny pink plastic bag with rice, her leftovers. The feeding halls at the shrine rely on donations from visitors. They pay cooks in open-air stalls surrounding the shrine to prepare enormous cauldrons of food that are shipped to the halls. But as Neen saw, one cook, Bilal Khan, says they're receiving less donations. And because everything costs more, they're making less food. Khan says he used to make 20 cauldrons a day. Now he prepares barely half that number. Last year, donors often requested he cook chicken or beef stews for the poor. This year, people don't want to even order chickpeas with their rice dishes. Across the shrine, 13-year-old Sheba chases friends down a marble-paved courtyard. She's from a nearby crowded slum and comes here to play and to eat. Sheba and her friends say their parents can't afford to buy once cheap staples like lentils. We don't eat at all at home. We come here and eat. As we chat, a security guard rushes over and smacks Sheba hard against her shoulders. Sheba scrams. The guard apologises. Later, he tells us he thought Sheba was trying to pickpocket us. Reports of petty crime like this have been increasing as hunger spreads. And the hunger we hear about in the shrine reflects what the World Food Programme sees in its data. The organisation expects that by March, more than 5 million people will be a step away from famine levels of hunger. Chris Kay is the Pakistan country director. That number is frightening. It's frightening and particularly when you balance it against what's happening next door in Afghanistan. What's happening in Afghanistan is that since the Taliban seized power, a humanitarian crisis has spiralled out of control and more than six million people there are close to famine. So we're not far away from a food insecure situation in Pakistan to, in terms of absolute numbers to the numbers that we're seeing in Afghanistan. The hunger has even reached a prosperous area where the poor have long flocked to work. The textile mills on the fringes of Faisalabad, a city about four hours' drive from the capital. There, one charity recently opened a roadside cafeteria. It serves free meals to workers like Mohammed Imran. He sits with his back to the entrance so nobody can see him. He mops up a plate of curried goat with a piece of naan. I came here with a heavy heart, but I have no choice. About six months ago, Imran says his monthly wage of $115 stopped stretching to the end of the month. The price of wheat, oil, vegetables doubled in his village and his family cut down on food. He began sleeping at the mill after the price of bus tickets home shot up to 80 cents. It got so bad, Imran pulled his daughter out of the ninth grade. He couldn't pay her $20 school fee. My daughter had such a promising future. If there was any hope at all that I could pay her fees, I'd send her back. But there's no hope. Imran says this cafeteria is full of men like him. It's run by a charity called Ceylani, which operates an industrial kitchen to meet demand. Bakers slap dough into flat bread. Butchers skin and chop up goats. They cook them in pots the size of bathtubs. 
Vats of prepared food are pushed into open back jeeps. Supervisors check off items. And free lunch is distributed for around 20,000 people. In his office, Administrator Irfan Malik says they're scaling up. From 26 cafeterias two years ago, they now have 40. And his staff expect the number of people needing food to double this year. That's one charity in one relatively prosperous city. Down the road, 45-year-old Ghulam Nabi keeps an eye on cotton looms in a one-room factory. His cheekbones protrude. His arms are bony. He's piling up debt to buy food. He owes $70 at the local shop. That's his monthly wage. But somehow, Ghulam Nabi says he's managing. He says, I work. I don't need free food. For now. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Faisalabad. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, how a few words from a Supreme Court justice may help weaken protections for people of color in the Voting Rights Act. And Nigeria, Africa's largest democracy, has a new president-elect who insists that recent elections were fair. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The chairman of a new House committee examining the economic and security threats facing the U.S. from China says Congress needs to focus on Beijing with a sense of urgency. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. That's Republican Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin speaking at the panel's first public hearing last night. The committee's top Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy of New Jersey, agrees. We seek a durable peace, and that is why we have to deter aggression. That hearing follows the recent shootdown of a Chinese surveillance balloon off the coast of South Carolina and comes amid questions about the Chinese-owned app TikTok and the origins of COVID-19. G20 foreign ministers are gathering in India. As NPR's Lauren Freyer reports, the host country wants to focus on economic issues, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine could dominate the discussions. G20 host country India has maintained ties with Russia despite the Ukraine war, and India's government wants this meeting to be a success. But U.S. and Russian diplomats have both walked out of previous G20 meetings because of their differences over the war. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov are both expected to attend. There's a group dinner tonight and talks tomorrow. Blinken is expected to arrive later today. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
A waste company in Sagas wants to expand its landfill, even though it's legally prohibited from doing so. That's because the landfill sits in an environmentally protected marsh. WBWAR's Palomora reports the company's efforts have divided the town. When the landfill in Sagas reaches capacity, the incinerator will have to truck the ash elsewhere to continue operating. But WinWaste has proposed a so-called host community agreement, offering financial benefits to the town to keep the landfill open. Deborah Panetta is the vice chair of the Sagas Board of Selectmen. I believe the reason why WinWaste is doing this is because they want to go to the Mass DEP holding a piece of paper and say, see, look at this, the Sagas wants it. The town is still negotiating with the company, but any expansion would have to be approved by the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Attleboro City Councilor Kathleen DeSimone will be the city's next mayor. She pulled off a surprise win in yesterday's special election against acting Mayor Jay Delisio. Unofficial election results show DeSimone received about 49 percent of the vote in a four-way race. She's expected to take office late next week. A new federal grant will help reconnect parts of Chinatown separated by the Mass Pike. The nearly $2 million will be used to build an open space. It'll also be used to connect streets divided by the highway in the 1960s. The project is one of 45 across the country getting money from the Department of Transportation. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. The Bruins beat the Flames 4-3 in overtime last night in Calgary. The Bees will be home tomorrow to play the Buffalo Sabres. Tonight, the Celtics will be at the Garden to take on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Some sun this morning, but by this afternoon, skies grow overcast. Temperatures will rise to the low 40s, mid-30s this evening, and cloudy with a slight chance of rain and snow, then a good chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy and foggy with a high in the upper 40s. Rain is likely in the morning. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spinoff of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams, quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Africa's largest democracy, in fact, Africa's most populous country, has a new president in waiting. Yeah, election officials declared Bola Ahmed Tinubu of the ruling party the winner of Nigeria's presidential elections. It was a close election. It had delays, disorganization, and sporadic violence at polling stations. And there are still questions. The opposition parties are demanding a revote and may go to court. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwutu joins us from the capital city of Nigeria, Abuja. Welcome. Good morning, Steve. What's it been like there the last few days? You know, today it's been a mixture of jubilation. His supporters, Bola Metinibu supporters, are out in the streets celebrating and also dismay and, and, and sadness with the result. There are protests 
currently in Abuja and elsewhere. Um, and that's largely because of the polls and what unfolded on Saturday. Um, I was out and going to speak to voters, going to polling stations, and quite frankly, it was a shambles around the country. The Electoral Commission started late, op polls opened late in many polling stations around Nigeria. Some hours late, some actually haven't had voting now, four days later. Hmm. And there were also, there were so many logistical failures, and there were also incidents of violence that marred the vote. In areas like where I was in Lagos, I saw armed gunmen uh, must come and shoot towards us, steal a presidential ballot box, a frightening scene. And incidents like that happened in pockets of the country, which has led to a lot of frustration and led the opposition to call the elections a sham. Um, I want to underline a couple of things that you said, because, of course, there are claims of election irregularities in the United States that are proven to have no basis. But you're telling me there were polling places that never opened and that you saw someone steal a box full of ballots. Did you just tell me those two things? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, on top of that, there have been some irregularities in uh, the Electoral Commission's platform, some votes that are backed up by the wrong evidence. Um, and so these are some of the issues that the opposition have kind of flagged and have called for the elections to be cancelled. Nonetheless, Bola Metirubu is now president of Nigeria. Who is he? What a question. <laughs> He's one of the most prominent powerful politicians in Nigeria, you know, really a household name, but he's also divisive. He's a former two-term governor. He's credited by his supporters for building Lagos to what it is, you know, one of the biggest economies in Africa. He's a kingmaker who helped bring President Buhari, outgoing President Buhari, to power. This time his slogan on the campaign trail was Emilokan, that's Yoruba for it's my turn. And now it is. But he's also derided by critics, actually, for overseeing decrepit infrastructure in Lagos, inequality, alleged control of state finances or politics. And then bizarrely, there are so many questions around him about his true age, his health, and how he made his money. You know, he said he made millions working for Deloitte as an, account as an accountant. Then it turned out to be false. He's also had many allegations, including in the US, where he had to forfeit $460,000 to authorities linked to heroin trafficking. So a big divisive, powerful figure, and now the president. You said a mystery about his age. How old is he, according to him? <laughs> He's 70, but, you know, this is something that's been disputed. Um, he also has had health issues, uh, but they have been quite quiet about it. He actually went on a treadmill, recorded a video of him riding a tread, riding a bike at home uh, to show that he is fit and hale and hearty. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwutu, NPR's correspondent in Abuja, Nigeria. Hope you get out and get some exercise so you can keep up with the new president. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. The Voting Rights Act may soon be in danger again at the U.S. Supreme Court. A key section of that landmark law has for decades been mostly enforced through lawsuits by private individuals. But that longstanding practice may end, meaning weaker voting protections for people of color. NPR's Hansilo Wong reports. Back in 2021, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch released a single paragraph. It was a concurring opinion for a major ruling in a lawsuit about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Gorsuch's one-paragraph opinion flagged a question he said no one in that lawsuit had raised about Section 2. Who has a right to sue? Yellow and red flags went up immediately because I knew exactly what the signal was. 
Doug Spencer is an associate law professor at the University of Colorado who tracks voting rights lawsuits. And Spencer says the signal he heard was that Gorsuch was interested in reviewing if private individuals and groups can sue under Section 2. There's now a case like that out of Arkansas that may be appealed to the Supreme Court soon. And Spencer says it's keeping him up at night. The vast majority of lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act are brought by private litigants. And if that process is taken off the table, then the protection of minority voting rights will be much weaker after that case than it was before. That Arkansas redistricting case was heard by a federal judge who was appointed by former President Donald Trump. And the judge said it's likely that at least some of the statehouse districts drawn by Republican politicians violate Section 2 protections for black voters. But the judge cited Gorsuch's one-paragraph opinion and decided the case had to be thrown out. That's because, the judge said, the Voting Rights Act does not explicitly say private groups can bring Section 2 lawsuits. Dan Tokaji, dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School, says that literal interpretation of the law doesn't make sense. The problem with that argument is that it conflicts with reality, including reality at the time that the Voting Rights Act was amended in 1982. Well, I am pleased today to sign the legislation extending the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Citizens. And President Ronald Reagan signed those 1982 amendments at the White House, surrounded by a bipartisan group of lawmakers. Some of them were on the House and Senate committees that put out reports about the amendments. And both reports said that private individuals have the right to sue under Section 2. Here's Dan Tokaji again. Everyone, and I do mean everyone, understood that that's what Congress meant. But the judge for the Arkansas lawsuit said only the head of the Justice Department can bring Section 2 cases. That's not how the department sees it, though. There are states, counties, school boards, water districts, city councils. Pam Carlin is a former Justice Department official who stepped down from the Biden administration last year. There are just so many different governmental bodies that are subject to Section 2 that the idea that you'd have one body in the Justice Department as the sole enforcement mechanism makes no sense at all. What does make sense to Michael Kang, a professor at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law, is that this Arkansas case is coming as the Supreme Court's conservative majority continues to chip away at the Voting Rights Act. Kang says if private individuals are no longer allowed to sue under Section 2. Republican governments that want to cut back minority voting opportunities, there'd be a new world of possibilities for them to take advantage of. It'd be really hard to challenge a lot of what they might do. For now, voting rights advocates are watching to see what the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals does first about this Arkansas case before it potentially makes its way to the Supreme Court. Hansi Wong, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, WBUR's Cristela Guerra introduces us to the man behind two decades of poetry jam nights at the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge. And in our next hour, doctors in Texas say state laws have them so scared that they won't even discuss abortion options with patients. Skies gradually grow overcast today. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s, cloudy and upper 30s this evening, and rain is likely overnight. Rain showers continue tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. If our recent winter weather has you dreaming of summers on the Cape, now may be a good time to start planning a trip. There are more summer vacation rentals available on the Cape and Islands right now compared to this time last year. WBUR's C.V. Chapman explains what that means for vacationers. Local booking sites say COVID was behind the rush to the Cape the past few summers. Joan Talmadge is the co-owner of WeNeedAVacation.com. She was expecting this year's slowdown. The last couple of years have just been a frenzy. Demand was very high, inventory was down, and we knew that pace was not sustainable. Talmadge says it's good news for people who previously had trouble finding a place to stay, but she doesn't suggest waiting to book this summer's trip. Look now. They will certainly have their best choices now rather than waiting. Even though more places are still available, Talmadge says bookings are 60% higher than pre-pandemic levels. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. And Leslie University, educating the exceptionally competent and socially conscious business leader. Learn more at leslie.edu. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Sunday nights at the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge are a time when poets can slam, spit, and carry a chorus alongside jazz musicians. Recently, the community celebrated the Poetry Jam's 25th anniversary and the man who started it all. WBUR's Christelle Guetta takes us there. Everybody say smooth. Turn to the person next to you and say, you look good. Turn to the person behind you and say, you look beautiful. Here, music mingles with words that hang in the air of this dark basement like a haze. There's a bar in one corner, soft carpet underfoot. This evening's host, Harlem 125, sets the mood for the evening and the poetry to come. I can see you through the prism of my life, colored, overlapped, conceptual, magnified. On the mic is Trish Janice. On the sax is Jeff Robinson. She finishes her poem and quickly notes that she has another, a tribute. I have known and loved and adored this man for 25 years. That is something very special and very magical. To understand the legacy of Jeff Robinson and his trio, you have to ask the poets. Because he's pretty humble, a jazz musician who doesn't like to talk about himself. He founded this poetry jam in 1998 to perform. He became a host, a slam master for competition, the person setting up chairs and testing sound equipment. So for one night, poets like Yoka Okoawo dedicated their words to him. This is 25 years dissertation in the making, underground style. Berkeley College of Music needs to give this man a doctorate. If you ask Robinson, creating the Poetry Jam is a journey, one that started after he arrived in Boston from St. Louis to study music at Berkeley. He discovered the way poetry and music make something new. I'm, I'm not a poet, but I do love playing music with 
poets. It's been an eye-opener, and it's changed my music dramatically. How much time can I slow down to enjoy this flow with you? And how slow can we go? Musicians play with time, and I'm letting my heart sing me. Robinson's sax sounds like a bee buzzing just under Margot Malia's poem. I'm moving matter with defying time and space. I become no one. Poets come in and out all evening, taking a break outside. I catch a moment with Jeannie Noons, who won the slam that evening. Born and raised in Roxbury, she's been driving across the bridge to Cambridge to attend poetry nights for 22 years. Like, we all do it out of love, you know? Uh, The majority of the poets you heard tonight are all well in their 40s. You know, some of us hitting 50, you know, grown kids, some of even grandparents on that mic. But when you get on that mic, on that stage anyway, we defy age, we defy any other thing, any barrier. We're just, it's just like, it's church. This night draws all kinds. Fresh faces arrive nervous, but ready to share poems about love or their pet who just passed away. Legends of the poetry community, like Reggie Gibson. There was something that was in the space tonight because of the people who were there that is beyond my experience to be able to name which for me, as a poet, is what creates poetry, you know? Because if you can name it, then you just write prose. If you can't name it, you write poetry. That indescribable feeling is what keeps people coming back. And though Robinson is stepping away from the poetry jam, the mic will still be there on Sundays. Poet and frequent host Cole Rodriguez made a promise that night to continue Robinson's legacy of uplifting artists. She also can't wait to hear what he does next. I look forward to you telling me stories about what you do on the weekend now that you don't got to come here every week. (laughs) I look forward to when you show up with a poem of your own. At the end of the night, Robinson takes to the mic, thanking those in the room and giving some parting words in the best way he knows how. This is what I want to leave y'all with. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. So nice to see you on this hump day. It is the middle of the week, Rupa. It feels like the middle of the yeah, week. Yeah, it does. But <laughs> it's great to be here. I, I So I'm pretty excited about this book that we're going to do today. So you, <clears throat> excuse me, listeners might remember, maybe about a month ago, we did a conversation on Radio Boston with the entire leadership team of MIT. They and all it was came all in. women. All women, exactly. So today we have a, a journalist coming in, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Her name is Kate Zernike, and she's written this book called The Exceptions. And it is the story of women faculty and women in science coming up through MIT, experiencing discrimination. And, and in 1999, 
right? Which is striking because some of the faculty in this book had been at MIT since the 60s coming together and saying, enough, right? Here's all the evidence. Here's all the proof. Here's what needs to change. And really with a force of will and determination, not only changing things at MIT, but really also for women in science. And it, it, it's an incredible story. And she's going to come in and tell us about it today. So interesting. And I, you said that some of the people that you talked to before are still there and they're in the book. Yeah, I mean, I asked about some of these women to the senior leadership team and they're still on faculty at MIT. So that's a living legends. Really cool. Thank you, Tiziana. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Here's an enduring legacy. Pink Floyd's album, Dark Side of the Moon, was released 50 years ago today. And it's still on the Billboard charts. It's the longest charting album in history. And if the dam breaks open many years soon Dark Side of the Moon can be enjoyed for its far-out sonic landscapes or its inventive production. You can also study the lyrics. Much of Roger Waters' writing was inspired by a former member of Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett. He was forced to leave the band he created when his behavior became too erratic. Some say it was a psychotic break. The lunatic is in my head. Author and cognitive psychologist Daniel Levitin is a Pink Floyd fan, and he studied these lyrics from a psychologist's perspective. He joins us now. Welcome. Good morning, Layla. So, Daniel, what do we know about Sid Barrett and why he left the band? Well, he was very creative. This was a sound that explored psychedelic music. Mm -hmm. But not coincidentally, Sid Barrett was using a lot of LSD, and he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. LSD and psilocybin are known as dissociative drugs, that can lead to temporary depersonalization. So in the context of spiritual growth and therapy, this can be positive. Your ego dissolves. You see yourself as part of a larger whole, connected to others, but sometimes the ego can dissolve and dissociate and you become crazy. Is that why he left the band? Well, ultimately, I think, Layla, the problem was that Sid was unreliable as a bandmate. He Mm. missed gigs, he was paranoid, And on stage, he would sabotage the performances or not play at all. His bandmates tried to get him to a psychiatrist, but he wouldn't go. And so they kicked him out in 1968. Now, Roger Waters says he based a lot of Dark Side of the Moon on Sid Barrett. Where do we hear that? Well, I think the themes of madness and alienation permeate the record. Hmm. We can't know for sure which specific lyrics were about Barrett as opposed more generally to mental anguish. But listen, the very first thing you hear on the record is that haunting heartbeat mm-hmm. and some machine sounds and voices. And I always imagined it as a mental hospital. Oh. And the narrator says, I've been mad for years. I've always been mad. And Roger Waters has said that Sid was always the heartbeat of the band. Mm. 
I always thought us and them was an interesting reference too, because on the surface, it's talking about generals and ranks, and it seems as though it's about an army. I think Waters is too good a lyricist to not use a metaphor. Mm. So I assume it's a metaphor for the firing of Sid. And I might be going out at a limb, but the line forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. Uh. So that's Roger, formerly in the rear of the band, firing the front rank. Wow. Saying that, you know, the band must move forward and it means sacrificing Sid. I'd love to talk about the song Time. From a psychologist's perspective, those lyrics, they must have great meaning. Right off the bat, they're playing with time. You hear that clop-clop sound, Mm -hmm. like a heartbeat or a clock ticking. And you think that the higher-pitched one is the downbeat, but as soon as the instruments come in, you realize you're off the beat and everything's upside down and your sense of time is distorted. And then you've got this long intro, and the proper part of the song doesn't start till well after two minutes in, as though they're ignoring the time conventions for a rock song. Away the moments that make up the dull day. Roger said about that year and that song that he suddenly realized that life was already happening. The idea that you prepare your whole life for a life that's going to start later, he suddenly realized life wasn't going to start later. It had started. Mm. And the idea of time was to grasp the reins and start guiding your own destiny. The whole album gives you a sense of self-reflection, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it's impossible to just keep it out there. It, it gets inside your head. So it's 50 years. What is it about this album that makes it still so relevant? Well, I suppose part of it is that it's now a cultural touchstone. Mm-hmm. If you're you know, under 30, it may be that your grandparents heard it and your parents heard it. I think also the art of it is that the songs flow into one another symphonically. Mm-hmm. And it's just full of little Easter eggs, little things that you can pick up that you hadn't noted were there before. And the lyrics sort of work all together as a whole. That final lyric, where the sun is eclipsed by the moon, 
maybe it's a metaphor. Sid was the sun of the band, the brightest spot, and Waters was the moon and overtook him. And probably felt a little bit of guilt about that. Neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, he's written many books, including the bestseller, This Is Your Brain, on music. Today is the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Leila. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head-on high-speed collision of a passenger train and freight train in Greece has killed at least 36 people and injured 85 more. It's Wednesday, March 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, abortion laws in Texas have some doctors scared to talk about the option with their patients. I have colleagues who say cryptic things like, the weather is really nice in New Mexico right now. Also, a waste company in Saugus is pushing to expand its landfill, even though it sits in a protected marsh. It would never be allowed or permitted now in current daytime. Plus, new research shows climate change is making hurricanes more frequent and stronger. One that might have been too weak to be a real problem before is now going to be stronger. So even for the same number of storms, the number that are a real problem goes up. It gradually grows cloudy today in the low 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. China has called on the U.S. to abandon Cold War zero-sum thinking. This follows a new House committee that held its first meeting last night. The panel is examining the U.S. relationship with China. NPR's John Ruich reports. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning told a daily briefing that Americans need to drop their ideological bias against China. She said they should be rational and objective when it comes to China, stop spreading the idea that China is a threat, and stop slandering the ruling Communist Party. She said relevant organizations and people in the U.S. should also quit hijacking U.S.-China relations for their political self-interest. At the hearing on Tuesday night, members of Congress and witnesses broadly made the argument that China is, in fact, a threat to the U.S. and the global order, and that it's time to adopt policies that address that. John Ruich, NPR News. In Israel, demonstrators are intensifying their protest against the Israeli government's plan to pass laws that would weaken the powers of the judiciary. For the first time, police have used stun grenades and water cannon to disperse protesters blocking an intersection. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from one of the many protests throughout Israel. There are dozens of protesters on this bridge overlooking a major highway in Tel Aviv. There are protesters blocking intersections in other parts of the country. They're stopping trains. People are going on strike. They're protesting because they say they fear their democracy is in danger. The Israeli governing coalition is advancing legislation to weaken the justice system. The Israeli government is also discussing new legislation today to make it hard to remove a sitting prime minister from office. That's because the Supreme Court is hearing a petition calling for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu 
to be removed from office because he's on trial for corruption and yet overseeing the attempt to weaken the justice system. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Authorities in Greece say they have arrested a station master following a shocking and deadly train crash outside of Athens. A passenger train and a freight train collided last night at high speed. They were on the same track. At least 36 people are dead and scores of other people are hurt. The first few cars of the trains have been obliterated. The Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, opens its meeting today. Thousands of activists often hear from presidential hopefuls. But this year, CPAC's leader, Matt Schlapp, is facing scrutiny. He's been accused of sexual misconduct, and he's been served with a $9 million civil lawsuit. And Pierre's Domenico Montanaro says CPAC is defending Schlapp. Carolyn Meadows, who's second vice chair at CPAC, uh, said that under Schlapp's leadership, quote, CPAC has grown into a professionalized organization focused on bolstering grassroots conservative activism and impacting policy, focusing on prioritizing individual liberty in America and around the world. Nothing there uh, about the specific allegations. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are higher. This is NPR. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Extra money for food approved by Congress during the pandemic for people receiving SNAP benefits will end tomorrow. WBWAR's Dave Faniff has more. The emergency allotments have allowed people to get up to $95 more a month. The Massachusetts House is expected to take up a supplemental budget today that has $130 million to partially fund the expanded program for a few more months. Aaron McAleer is CEO of Project Bread, an organization that connects people with food. She says even if the state money is approved, it will not replace all the benefits being lost. So this is going to make sure that families have three more months of receiving 40 percent of what they received before. McAleer says SNAP feeds over 600,000 households in Massachusetts. She says that's 10 times the number of people that charities can feed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. The new head of the Massachusetts Republican Party says she spent much of her first month on the job sorting out the party's finances. Amy Carnavali tells WBUR's Radio Boston she's also been working with state regulators to make sure all necessary filings are accurate. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Carnavali says she's encouraged by grassroots Republicans, local GOP committees, and party members who may have been waiting on the sidelines but are now re-energized and ready to get back to support the party again. She says they want to move forward and focus on getting Republicans elected. The message I've heard is we want to stop the inner party bickering. You know, we're less than 9% now of registered voters in the Commonwealth. Uh, so we can't afford to be fighting amongst ourselves, and that's too often marked the party in the past. Carnavali says she is still figuring out how much money the cash-strapped party still owes. She says she's discovered $600,000 in invoices the party racked up under previous chairman Jim Lyons. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Congressman Seth Moulton wants to help surviving black World War II veterans get GI Bill benefits. His bill would also extend the benefits to surviving spouses and direct descendants. Moulton tells MSNBC that as a former Marine, he wouldn't be where he is without the benefits of the GI Bill. So many black veterans who fought right alongside white uh, soldiers and Marines in World War II were simply denied these benefits that they had earned. And the two ways to gain wealth in America that everybody knows are getting an education, going to college, and having a home. 
those were denied to so many black veterans. The original 1944 bill was supposed to help anyone who fought in World War II get low-cost mortgages and education assistance, but those benefits were often denied to black veterans. Sales jumped last month at the Massachusetts Lottery. The lottery reports sales climbed 12 percent last month compared to the same time last year. It also saw a jump in profits, in part because fewer people claimed their winnings. It's 8.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. The Bruins ended their four-game Western road trip with a perfect 4-0 record. They beat the Flames 4-3 in overtime last night in Calgary. The Bees will return home tomorrow to play, to play the Sabres. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers at spring training. In Florida last night, the Red Sox beat the Marlins 7-2. The Sox play the Astros this afternoon. Sunny to start today, but then turning cloudy, temperatures will get into the lower 40s. Cloudy tonight with some rain or snow showers possible. It'll be in the 30s. Rain ends in the morning. It'll turn cloudy and warm up with a high near 50. We could get some snow Friday night into Saturday. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Southern Baptist Convention recently expelled five churches because they have women pastors. And in SBC's interpretation of scripture, that position should only be held by men. Joining us now is Linda Barnes-Popham. She's a pastor at one of the expelled churches, Fern Creek Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning to you. So I want to start with what went through your mind when you got the news that your church was expelled because you, a woman, is the pastor. The first thought that came to my mind, as well as the minds of many others, was why now? Yeah. I have served this church for 40 years. 30 of those years have been as pastor. As a matter of fact, today is my 40th anniversary of being at the church. Wow, happy anniversary. And I'm not sure who the exact folks are who've spearheaded this movement to get rid of female pastors. But I do know that an email was sent a few months ago asking pastors to sign a letter to affirm an amendment to the Southern Baptist Convention bylaws, which would say that women cannot serve as pastors. Now, I received that letter, too. Yeah. Why now? I mean, is it to divert attention away from all the sexual abuse scandals? I don't know, but I do also know that about three years ago, I received a phone call from a member of the Credentials Committee who let me know that we had been under investigation. However, they found us in friendly cooperation with the SBC, and they assumed that because of my age, I would probably retire soon and that this would be a non-issue, but they Mm. didn't really want me to tell anyone. So our questions are, what changed and why now? Now, the SBC is saying, well, this is just about Scripture, our interpretation of Scripture, but you think it's it's something else. I want to ask if you think this is signals, you know, an ultra-conservative ideological wing of the organization now dominating, making a decision like this. I myself and our church would mm-hmm. be considered very conservative. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it has to be more than that. It has to be something about power, those 
in control. Um, I mean, we were were shocked. Yeah, uh, our congregation. Uh, because we're all about Jesus, and that's what our goal is for people to know Jesus. What, we are what evangelistic. Has congreg- what has oh, your I'm congregation sorry. been saying? I mean, you talk about being shocked. What What are you telling congregants, and what are they asking you? Oh, well, they have the copy of everything that the credentials committee sent to us and how I, we responded back in October, because that's when the credentials committee contacted me this go around Mm -hmm. in October we had to answer several questions and we had a meeting on zoom and then they said we're going to send uh, a recommendation to the uh, executive committee that you should be disfellowshipped that meeting is going to be Monday or Tuesday and then I thought well we'll receive some kind of notification after that but the first notification I've heard of was at four o'clock last Tuesday from a reporter in Nashville wanting to know my reaction. Hmm. So our congregation, Mm -hmm. I mean, their questions are the same. Why us? We've been, we, we consider ourselves very Southern Baptist. We would be more Southern Baptist than many of the other churches. Uh, Like I said, conservative, evangelistic, Mm -hmm. mission-minded. Now, of course, there are many other emotions that the congregants uh, share with each other. Uh, Yeah, we are are not happy about their decision. What precedent do you think it sets to expel a church like yours and others very successful churches who are bringing people in the door like Saddleback at a time where a lot of people aren't coming through the door of churches? What precedent does it set in the few seconds we have left? That that no, Southern Baptists no longer adhere to the priesthood of the believers and no longer believe in the autonomy of the local church, and that those in power in SBC life do not value churches who are truly doing the work of the gospel. Wow. Pastor Linda Barnes Popham of the Fern Creek Baptist Church, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Lauren Miller was 13 weeks pregnant when she received the news a lethal diagnosis for one of her twins. So she saw a high-risk OBGYN in her state of Texas and heard this. You can't do anything in Texas, and I can't tell you anything further in Texas, but you need to get out of state. So that's what she heard, but uh, is that true? Can Texas doctors not even talk to patients about abortion? Here's NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. There isn't one abortion ban in Texas. There are, in fact, three laws banning abortion, says Elizabeth Sepper, a professor at Texas Law. We have the trigger ban that comes along with up to life imprisonment. We have possibly the pre-row ban. And then we have SB8 as a civil backstop, which prohibits aiding and abetting abortions. But these laws are not as sweeping as some people seem to think, she says, and they wouldn't come into play for Lauren Miller. All of them exempt the pregnant person. None of them apply outside the borders of Texas. So abortions performed in Colorado or uh, California are not covered. On top of that, none of them If we focus on the criminal bans, they don't criminalize physician speech, right? So physicians should not be scared to say the A word. Nevertheless, that seems to be what's happening. Many physicians in Texas who treat pregnant patients are really scared. 
it's just absolutely crippling. That's Lauren Miller's OBGYN in Dallas. She was willing to speak with NPR anonymously because she was not authorized by her employer to speak with the media. There is an exception in Texas law for when a woman's life or a major bodily function is in imminent danger, but authorities haven't clarified when that applies. And there are pregnancy complications, like Lauren Miller's, where many doctors would consider it to be the standard of care to offer abortion as an option. In those cases, physicians feel like they can't be fully truthful with patients, Miller's doctor says. I have colleagues who say cryptic things like, the weather's really nice in New Mexico right now. Or I've heard traveling to Colorado is really nice this time of year. Patients need to be well-educated enough to pick up on these hints, do their own research, and figure out what to do next. She herself is careful not to put things in writing. And even frank conversations in person or over the phone make her feel vulnerable. If a patient's grandmother or aunt or partner or sister or whatever finds out that I've talked to them about an abortion, and that's something that really, really upsets them. All they have to do is find a lawyer, and all of a sudden I'm aiding and abetting someone into an abortion. A half dozen Texas OBGYNs NPR contacted for this story didn't respond or declined to comment. Dr. Andrea Palmer, an OBGYN in Fort Worth, says a lot of people are too scared to talk. She says there's a lot of uncertainty since this hasn't really been tested in court. Nobody wants to be the first one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, nobody wants to be defendant number one on that. Palmer says even if you read the law closely, it's still not clear what doctors can say and do. The law is vague. It's really, you know, poorly written, probably on purpose. No doctor in Texas has yet been charged for counseling their patients about abortion. Sepper, the law professor, says it's a disservice to patients when doctors don't use their First Amendment rights. Physicians have independent speech rights to speak to their patients openly. Providing information, even providing referrals outside of Texas, it's not within the terms of either SB8 or the criminal bans. Doctors' unwillingness to talk about abortion can have serious consequences. Dr. Eve Espy is chair of the OBGYN department at the University of New Mexico, where more and more Texas patients are traveling for abortions. We see people who just, uh, you know, have no idea that there are options out of state. She recalls one Texas patient whose fetus had a fatal condition called acrania, the absence of a skull. And that was a doctor who didn't tell her, go get care out of state. She was an immigrant. And it took her a while to figure out that that she could go out of state, that there were other resources. Even though she was diagnosed at 11 weeks pregnant, by the time she made it to Espy's hospital in New Mexico, she was 17 weeks and the surgery was much more complicated. We did her procedure in the operating room with our you know, most complex surgeons there as backup. And she hemorrhaged, uh, she wound up with a hysterectomy. So this is a patient who, if she had been able to have that pregnancy termination at 11 or 12 weeks, very likely would not have lost her uterus the way she did when she was 16 to 17 weeks. Espy believes that there are many doctors in Texas who would like to provide more information, but are unsure if they can. The Texas laws were designed to sow confusion and fear, and they're working. And people want to stay out of trouble. And, you know, physicians are no exception to that. 
NPR reached out to five Texas lawmakers and the state attorney general to ask for more clarity on Texas's abortion laws and to get comment on Lauren Miller's case. None responded to our request. Brendan Steinhauser, a Republican political strategist based in Austin, believes that Texas lawmakers aren't eager to take up new abortion legislation, either to create more exceptions or more restrictions. I think Republican legislators kind of realize, hey, we passed these bills into law. We weren't punished at the ballot box. So what is the incentive to do anything different? The way Lauren Miller sees it, if not for the state of Texas and its restrictions, her doctors could have done much more to help her. They would have just been able to give information freely, get it scheduled. It wouldn't become this whole agonizing process of just trying to get information of what do we actually need? Like, where do we go? How are we going to handle logistics? All of that. She had to leave her home state and travel 800 miles to get an abortion that her doctors told her she needed. That makes her angry, and she refuses to stay quiet about it. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, how a waste company's plans to expand its landfill is dividing the town of Saugus. It's 820. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we'll have a high near 42, a low around 34 this evening. There's a slight chance of rain and snow early in the evening. Then rain is likely overnight. Tomorrow, more rain likely, otherwise cloudy with a high near 48. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A very old trash incinerator in Saugus is running out of space to dump its ash. The company that owns it wants to expand, but it's located in a wetland, so state environmental regulations forbid it. Despite the law, the incinerator company is trying to garner community support for its plan to increase capacity. WBWAR's Palomora has the story. 
From the trail through Romney Marsh, you can see birch trees, dry plants, and some surface water in the wetland. And you can also see the stacks of the wind waste incinerator and the landfill where it dumps the ash. Jackie Mercurio is an activist who grew up in the neighborhood less than a mile from the plant and near the protected marsh habitat. It's a critical area of concern for the environment. The ash landfill sits inside this designated area, which we have lots of marshes and our saga server. The marsh is home to a number of bird species, some of them endangered. The area also has shellfish and other wildlife, and it's critical for flood control. For decades, Mercurio's family has fought the incinerator to improve air quality and reduce noise. The ash landfill sits right in the marsh, and it doesn't have a double protective lining to keep waste from leaching into the marsh. It would never be allowed or permitted now in current daytime. Now, the landfill is near capacity. In the past, the company got permission to expand it, but never beyond a 50-foot height. They would just fill the gaps between piles. But now, Wind Waste wants to keep using the landfill for another 20 years. The only way an expansion of this landfill would be possible if there was a change in current law and current regulation. That's Eric Worrall speaking at a recent community meeting recorded by Saugus Community Television. He's a regional director at the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. The regulation hasn't stopped wind waste from moving forward and trying to get some town officials on board. Wind waste proposed what is called a host community agreement. Basically, the company asked the Board of Selectmen to support the landfill expansion and offer the town financial benefits and promise to reduce emissions slightly. Some in Sagas are pushing for the agreement with Wind Waste, formerly known as Willibrator. Anthony Cogliano is the chairman of the Board of Selectmen. Sagas has never won a lawsuit against Willibrator. Willibrator has continued to operate and get basically whatever they want. From the DEP, this is a proactive approach to put Saugus in a better place than we've been in the past. Cogliano has supported wind waste before. When residents sued the company for air pollution in 2021, he responded to the company's request for help and gathered residents' declarations of support. Critics say the move is unethical for a chairman of the town board. And activists are concerned that the host agreement could persuade the state to change the regulation. Deborah Panetta is the vice chair of the Saugus Board of Selectmen. I believe the reason why Wind Waste is doing this is because they want to go to the Mass DEP holding a piece of paper and say, see, look at this. The Saugus wants it. Even if the Board of Selectmen moves forward with an agreement, it would still have to be approved not only by Mass DEP, but also by the Saugus Board of Health and the town manager. So I truly believe that they're going to stand with Saugus, Revere, Lynn, all of the communities, and say no is no. So any vote that we take on this host agreement is moot. It doesn't make a difference. Still, Panetta wants the whole thing to shut down when the landfill reaches its permitted capacity. She's not alone. People across the Salt River and downwind in neighboring communities have no jurisdiction over the plant. I asked to be on the committee and I was told that it was for Saugus residents only. Even though we are just, if not more, impacted. 
That's Loretta LaCentra, a resident and activist from Revere. She lives less than a mile from the incinerator, and the wind frequently reaches her neighborhood. She says ash lands in her backyard, and she has installed air filters in her home. She's concerned because the incinerator emits more of the harmful air pollutant called nitrogen oxide than the state limit. So they have purchased what they call emission reduction credits, which allow them to be compliant on paper, but the air is dirtier that we breathe. For the past two years, researchers have been monitoring the air quality in La Centra's neighborhood. The data suggests that when the wind blows from the direction of the incinerator, the concentration of nitrogen oxides and particulate matter increases. At times, the air pollution surpasses the healthy limits established by the Clean Air Act. MassDEP doesn't have air monitors in Saugus. It relies on air monitoring at the plant and occasional inspections. Winways declined an interview. The Saugus board vote is on hold until the company comes back with a new proposal clarifying the financial benefits for the town. But plant opponents say none of this should matter. The landfill is not legally allowed to expand. Hopefully, once we can close that part up of the ash landfill, we can move on to the incinerator and start making it a cleaner environment for the people that live around here. Saga's resident Jackie Mercurio says once the landfill reaches capacity, she thinks the plants should shut down as well. But the incinerator could still stay open and truck the ash elsewhere. And that's the air pollution Mercurio and others say they don't want to bear anymore. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. why the Justice Department may block the merger between Spirit Airlines and JetBlue, the biggest airline at Logan Airport. And a new study suggests that climate change is making back-to-back hurricanes more common, which makes it more difficult for communities to recover. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Greece say they expect the death toll to climb following last night's fiery head-on collision between a passenger train and a freight train. At least 36 people are confirmed dead. Dozens more were injured, many seriously. The trains collided at high speeds as the passenger train was exiting a tunnel near Tempe that's in northern Greece. Derek Katopoulos is covering the crash for the Associated Press. The freight train was carrying very heavy cargo, it was construction material. The impact sent the other train basically flying up into the air, landing, twisting and catching fire. And they're still pulling out bodies from the wreckage after they've managed to lift the heavy parts of the front part of the train by a crane. 
A rail station master is under arrest. The economic and security threats posed by China were the focus of a new House committee at the panel's first public hearing last night. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. The Republican chairman of the new select committee is Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher. He opened the hearing likening the U.S.-China relationship to an existential struggle. Republicans and Democrats appear united on the need to focus on China. And although the panel's top Democrat, Illinois Congressman Roger Krishnamoorthy, said the U.S. wants a durable peace, he said Chinese aggression must be deterred. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston City Councilors will consider a proposal today that would change the way restaurants, supermarkets, and other big food generators deal with leftovers. Councilor Gabriela Coletta is behind the proposal. It would require edible leftovers to be donated at the end of each day to local nonprofits that could redistribute them. Coletta says the measure will prevent food waste and alleviate food insecurity. So this is an effort to utilize what is still safe to consume to its highest possible use before it is sent to be recycled or to a landfill. Coletta says she was inspired by state food recovery programs in Europe, California, and New York State. Boston Public Schools isn't complying with a federal order related to how it supports English language learners. The order tells BPS it needs to consult with Multicultural Education Training and Advocacy, Inc. The district needs to tell the group how it's spending federal money dedicated to English learners. But that group tells the Boston Globe it hasn't gotten budget updates for a year. The district did not address the claim directly, but says it's working to give every student an equity education. The Lizard Lounge Poetry Jam in Cambridge is 25 years old this year. The community recently came together to celebrate the anniversary and the man behind it all. WBUR's Christelle Guetta has more. Jazz musician Jeff Robinson founded the Poetry Jam in 1998 as a way to perform. In the years since, he became a host, a slam master for competition, and the person setting up chairs and testing sound equipment. Marlon Carey attended the celebration honoring his friend, and the community he created. He created a space where jazz could be appreciated over or under, rather, some, some poetry. And they're very attentive to the words. The Poetry Jam will continue at Lizard Lounge, though Robinson is officially retiring from hosting duties. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, enhancing the lives of children, youth, adults, and families through transformative care and supports. ElliottCHS.org. The Bruins won their eighth straight game last night. They beat the Flames 4-3 to in overtime in Calgary. The Bees will host the Buffalo Sabres tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics host the Cleveland Cavaliers. Some sun this morning, but by this afternoon, skies grow overcast. Temperatures will rise to the low 40s, mid-30s this evening, and cloudy with a slight chance of rain and snow, then a good chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy and foggy with a high in the upper 40s. Rain is likely in the morning. It's 36 Six degrees in Boston at 8:34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com/public. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com.
www.thepatriotsupreme.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Justice Department says it will decide this month whether to sue to block Spirit Airlines from merging with JetBlue. Airline ticket prices are soaring even faster than inflation, and any Justice Department action could make a big difference to consumers. Diana Moss is president of the American Antitrust Institute. It's an antitrust research and advocacy organization, and she joins us this morning on the program. Good morning. Good morning. So why is the DOJ considering suing to block this merger? Well, I think uh, this merger of JetBlue and Spirit raises a lot of concerns around the effect on consumers. And that's uh, that's really a loss of important competition, head-to-head competition between JetBlue and Spirit uh, in terms of the loss of competitors on important routes, Uh, originating from the Northeast, for example, and going down to Florida and other parts of the country. But I think we also have to remember that mergers can affect labor as well by Mm. reducing bargaining power of pilots and um, other airline workforces. And it's one less competitor in our passenger aviation system. So losing an important competitor can really contribute to having sort of a, a fragile system that isn't very resilient to withstand shocks like what we saw with weather um, at the end of 2022 right. and even COVID. Now, we reached out for comment from the airlines, and, and they say, well, the merger would actually increase competition with other airlines. That's what JetBlue said, and drive down air prices, airfare prices in general. But in your view, that's obviously not what you think. No, it's not. And, we, you know, we take a hard look at these deals. It's, um, um, it, it's, it's really important if you look, if, to look at it on a route, a route level basis. So we're really looking at how on important routes from origins to destinations, how mm-hmm. the merger will affect competition. And it really does eliminate an important, uh, an important competitor. And when you have that in markets where there isn't a lot of competition anyway, right. as a result of many, many years of consolidation, then uh, that really does start raising questions about higher fares and lower quality for consumers. Do you think the Justice Department can really do anything? I mean, last year they failed, the department failed to block an alliance between JetBlue and American Airlines that's known as the Northeast Partnership. Mm-hmm. What does that say about whether a lawsuit could successfully stop this kind of merger? Well, I think we have a, a more aggressive set of antitrust enforcers at mm-hmm. DOJ and the FTC. The Biden administration is uh, committed to promoting competition and, and sort of slowing down uh, the the kind of consolidation that we've seen in the U.S. economy for many years, and and the only way to to do that really is for the DOJ to evaluate the merger, to file a lawsuit um, on the grounds that it's illegal, and, and it would really substantially reduce competition. And you know, depending on how the airlines want to respond to that, um, there there could be. Uh, a settlement. We do not favor a settlement because we don't think that would really restore competition. Mm. Or they could end up in federal court litigating this case in front of a judge. And that's what you want? Um, I think that is probably the best way to ensure that uh, consumers are not harmed uh, by this merger and that workers, um, various labor forces are not harmed and that we uh, maintain important resiliency in our air system by having more competition instead of less.
Now, you mentioned that this doesn't just impact consumers, it impacts the people who work at these airlines. So what are employees of JetBlue and Spirit saying? Well, I can't speak exactly to, to those workforces, but more generally, um, what we're seeing um, are, for example, pilots really mm -hmm. stepping up uh, to uh, express concerns about the effects of joint ventures, for example, the code shares that are being proposed in um, the Northeast Alliance between American and JetBlue. Uh, other code shares are being proposed, uh, Legend, for example, and the Mexican low-cost carrier uh, Viva Airbus. Uh, what happens with these types of, of joint ventures is, you know, the, the more expensive workforces are displaced with the lower, um, the, the the less expensive workforces. But but that you know that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But when it results from a joint venture, for example, eliminating competition, that's when we start to worry. Diana Moss, president of the American Antitrust Institute. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Scientists believe that climate change is making hurricanes more dangerous. And when multiple storms hit in a short period of time, it can overwhelm emergency responses, which has been happening repeatedly during the Atlantic hurricane season. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports on new research that suggests back-to-back -back storms could become more frequent. Climate change is making hurricanes more intense, which means more powerful wind, more rain, and more flooding from storm surge. The new study finds that climate change also makes it more likely that two storms will hit in quick succession, which is bad news for coastal communities. Ning Lin is the lead author of the study, which was published in the journal Nature Climate Change. She's a climate scientist at Princeton University. The communities need to recover from disasters and bounce back, right? However, if you have a storm impacting one location and shortly after, before you recover, you get another storm impacting the same location. Then a second storm will do even more damage than it otherwise would have. It's like getting kicked when you're already down. This is already clear in places that have seen back-to-back -back hurricanes in recent years. For example, South Louisiana was hit with two hurricanes in less than two months in 2020, permanently destroying some of the hardest-hit neighborhoods. In the future, such sequential disasters will get more common, the study finds. The reason is somewhat counterintuitive. It's not that there will be a larger number of storms overall. Instead, as the Earth gets hotter, storms are getting more intense. And so people on the coast experience dangerous floods and wind more often. Adam Sobel is a climate scientist at Columbia University. The storm's getting stronger. So one that might have been too weak to be a real problem before is now going to be stronger. So even for the same number of storms, the number that are a real problem goes up because of the strengthening. So what can be done? Sobel says one thing is to change where we live. We can find ways to stop building stuff, you know, in hazard prone areas of the coast. But so far, that hasn't been happening. Some of the fastest growing places in the U.S., Florida, for example, are also the most vulnerable to hurricanes. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new report finds that even as China expands its renewable energy industry, it's granting permits for new coal power plants. Skies gradually grow overcast today. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s, cloudy in upper 30s this evening, and rain is likely overnight. Rain showers continue tomorrow morning, then it'll be cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G. A funny date night play and love letter to our city starts Friday, HuntingtonTheater.org. Local ski resorts say yesterday's snowstorm should get more people heading up to the mountains. Wachusett Mountain in Princeton got around five inches of snow yesterday. Spokesperson Chris Stimson says although snowmaking allowed most of the mountain's trails to remain open this winter, natural snow puts skiing in people's minds. We laid down a solid base with our snowmaking early season. So we have like a four foot base and this natural snow on top of that is just really refreshing all the trails. Um, and these are probably the best conditions of the season. Stimson says Wachusett should stay open until April. The state's longest serving secretary of health and human services is starting a new job today. Mary Lou Sutters is joining the Boston-based lobbying firm Smith, Costello and Crawford. As a senior policy advisor, Sutters will provide advice and consulting to the firm and its clients. Those include Tufts Medicine and the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. The Brockton-based maker of Uno's frozen Chicago-style pizzas is being acquired. Uno Foods is now part of Great Kitchens Food Company, which is based in the Chicago area. Great Kitchens will take over Uno's pizza factory in Brockton with its nearly 100 employees. The deal does not include Norwood-based Uno Pizzeria and Grill restaurants, which has 16 locations throughout the state. It's 845. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. China permitted more coal power plants last year than any time in the last seven years. It's the equivalent of about two new coal plants per week. That's according to a new report out. To find out more, we turn to reporter Julia Simon from NPR's Climate Desk. Hi, Julia. Good morning, Leila. So this is a massive increase in new coal plant approvals in China. What's driving it? Yeah, the researchers found this really accelerated in the second half of last year. Last summer, there were these big heat waves in China, and there's an ongoing drought in China. The Yangtze River dried up in places, so you had millions of people running their ACs in the heat and not enough hydropower. China's provincial governments worried about blackouts and quickly broke ground on new coal plants. So they need more electricity. Now, China leads the world in building new renewables. So why are they turning to coal-fired power plants for this? Well, they're doing both. They're building more solar and wind than any other country, 
and building new coal plants. Some of these provinces say that they'll only run the new coal plants as backup for renewables. It's too early to know how much they'll run. Report co-author Aichin Yu of Global Energy Monitor says a lot of why China turned to coal last year comes from the country's coal lobby. For a long time, the industry tried to just spread the words on that coal is the most reliable energy type. So when the energy crisis happened, the country just seek solutions from coal by default. Immediate reaction, just go to coal. And Leila, that's despite the fact that coal just isn't that economical anymore, mm. especially compared to renewables. And many of these new coal plants might end up losing money. Now, China is the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. So what do new coal plants there mean for reaching climate goals? It's still unclear. China has committed to having its emissions peak before 2030. What they didn't say is how high that peak would get. The higher the peak, the harder it is to get off fossil fuels. Globally, coal use is expected to peak soon. It's just no longer economical again. And it's harder to get financing for new coal plants. China really is seeming like the exception as it builds all these plants. So are there ways to turn more to renewables than coal for China? Yeah. So one big solution here involves the Chinese grid. In the U.S., we have these bottlenecks and delays for getting renewables onto the grid, problem with transmission between regions. Those are some of the same issues they're having in China. So researchers say working on technical and political grid issues can help China get more renewables and storage online. NPR's Climate Solutions reporter Julia Simon, thanks so much. Thank you, Leila. All right, you can only hear this program, you can't see us. So I'd like to set the scene. I'm in Studio 31 here at NPR keep the light down low to keep down the glare so I can see through this big window where there's another room and I see Lily Quiroz, our director, Zach Coleman, technical director. Jan Johnson's back there. Is that H.J. Mai behind the computer screen? Hi, guys. Uh, other people coming and going, sometimes with their heads in their hands because it has been a busy day. Yes, it has. You hear us, but those are the people that are putting out fires behind the scenes. We spent half the morning trying to connect with one of our correspondents in Nigeria. We will get him eventually with the election news. A lot of the staff on the overnight go on to cover the world, and they include two of the correspondents in today's show. Yeah, Selena Simmons-Duffin covering abortion access in Texas. Arzu Razvani reporting on how you can get some return on your savings. I was taking notes on that one. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, voters in Chicago have denied Mary, Mayor Lori Lightfoot a second term. Two candidates will advance to a runoff. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now. Jane Clayson is here to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Jane. Hi. Good morning, Rupa. Well, we've got our eyes on all the big stories as usual today. The House Committee on China holding its first hearing last night. The Southern Baptist Convention expelling five prominent churches because they have installed female pastors. That's causing quite an uproar. We'll look at that. We'll also look at several near collisions 
collisions between airplanes. The latest was a close call on Monday night at Logan Airport. So we'll look at what's happening in the skies. And a really interesting story today, Rupa, we'll hear from the founder of a Massachusetts-based organization that helps Ukrainian refugees resettle here and across the country. It's called Welcome NST. It's short for Neighborhood Support Team. It's a community-based model, very successful, and the State Department has just endorsed it as one of its leading go-to organizations. Its founder, right here in Boston, been to Ukraine twice in the last seven months to visit refugee centers there, tells remarkable stories of families who've lost everything and trying to make a life here in the United States. It's quite remarkable and very inspiring. It sounds like it. And it also sounds like some of the Canadian models that have happened with refugees there. That's right. And, you know, this woman was telling me that a lot of these families, they love it here and they're so grateful for everything that people have done for them, but they want to go back, mm. right? This is just a stop to go back to Ukraine and try to pick up the pieces of their country. That's again. really interesting. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. <laughs> In 1919, the Institute for Sexual Research opened in Berlin. It pioneered medical treatment for transgender people and gave them a safe space, too. People talked about the inside of it as being magisterial and yet homey, so that it was a place that really mixed the two different fields of of interest. The world's first clinic for trans people. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We'll see some sun this morning, but clouds will gradually move in for an overcast afternoon. It'll be in the low 40s. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston at 852. In a few minutes, we'll look at some of the costs of loneliness. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio. First, struggling families will see less money from the government to help with groceries. The pandemic-era program has ended. The temporarily increased SNAP benefits, food stamps. So inflation pulling one way, reduced federal aid tugging at the other direction. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. The federal government had been providing so-called emergency allotments, additional aid for those receiving food assistance. Congress ended the program as part of the $1.7 trillion budget deal lawmakers passed in December. Instead, they created a new permanent program which gives additional food aid to low-income parents during the summer months when school is out. 18 states had already terminated the additional SNAP benefits, Florida being the most populous among them. For the rest, some 30 million SNAP recipients will get an average of $90 less a month starting now. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, some households could see dramatic reductions of $250 a month or more. The think tank says the additional SNAP benefits played a big role in keeping people out of poverty, especially people of color. Officials say SNAP recipients should make sure they update eligibility details because that could increase their monthly benefits and to seek other aid programs in addition to SNAP. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. In China's financial center, Hong Kong, COVID masks are no longer required. The $600 fine for violating this is now gone. Here's Marketplace's China correspondent, Jennifer Pack. Starting from today, people in Hong Kong will no longer have to wear masks indoors, outdoors, or even on public transport. 
but hospitals and nursing homes can still require masking. This sends a clear message, says Hong Kong's leader John Lee, that the Chinese territory is getting back to normal. There are crowds on the streets and in malls, but not as many people are buying. In the touristy areas of Central and Jimsazhou, several shops are empty and looking for tenants. Businesses still standing, like a fishbowl noodle restaurant, may sell at the usual price, but the serving size is cut by a third. Hong Kong adopted some of the toughest COVID rules during the pandemic, like flight bans, extended hotel quarantines, and limiting group gatherings. No surprise then that its economy shrank 3.5% last year. Now, Hong Kong leaders want to revive the economy by offering half a million free air tickets to attract tourists and passing out consumption vouchers to encourage spending. Without a mask mandate, Hong Kong joins neighboring Macau and mainland China in dropping nearly all COVID restrictions, except they still require international passengers to test before arrival. Mainland China remains the only one of the three still not issuing visas to foreign tourists. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. Salsa News Today. Factory orders jumped in China in January with COVID rules gone. Stocks went up 4% there. Here, Dow and S&P futures are down 2 tenths percent now. There's news today that pharma giant Eli Lilly will cut the cost of insulin by 70% toward the end of this year and put a $35 per month cap on out-of-pocket charges for people using the medicine. New federal law had capped the cost for seniors on Medicare. This move effectively affects insulin patients more widely. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects not just done, but done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. By one estimate, more than two out of three working adults consider themselves lonely. Some embrace being alone, but loneliness is different, something debilitating, an epidemic with links to reduced productivity and the need for more health care. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman looks at how loneliness affects workers and what workplaces can do about it. The health insurer Cigna has been crunching the numbers on loneliness in the workplace. Ann Bowers leads the research. Lonely workers had significantly higher rates of stress-related absenteeism. They miss an extra week of work per year compared to non-lonely workers. They were also more likely to be thinking about quitting their jobs. Twice as likely, in fact. Bottom line, says Bowers, when it comes to worker productivity. Loneliness costs employers approximately $154 billion annually. There's a cost to those experiencing loneliness as well. Esther Prentice is 36 and lives with her cat in a small apartment in Portland, Oregon. She's experienced depression and loneliness since childhood and plays piano to keep her spirits up. She's had some really bad jobs, she says, like public transit bus driver. That was the worst, not only job, but the worst thing I've ever done for my mental health. The level of stress while also being sedentary and you are alone. Employers can help mitigate some of the loneliness people experience at work, says human connection consultant Uni Turatini. At the weekly team meeting, for example. She says take just five or ten minutes to go around the room or the video call. And you have one person that gets to share something about their life that most people don't know about them. So something that is not 
perhaps work-related, which makes people feel seen and heard and valued. In an era of remote work and nonstop screens, Turatini recommends scheduling teams to come into work in person on a regular basis to improve productivity and morale. Sometimes it's the job itself you have to get right to break the loneliness. Esther Prentice found the one for her. She's now a barber in a small salon. And I love being at work. I have my hour with each person. And for some people, they're getting their head shampooed, and it's the first time that they've been cared for in a while, which is, can be very powerful. It keeps her on an even enough keel to keep coming back to work day after day. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Mitchell's reporting is part of a collaboration with Call to Mind, our parent company, American Public Media's mental health initiative. And earlier this week, passengers aboard an EasyJet flight from Iceland to Britain got quite a show. The pilot pulled off a little 360-degree turn so that the passengers on both sides of the jet could see a dazzling display of the northern lights. The Aurora Borealis has been putting on quite a glow and... Not just in the far north, in the UK reportedly, some have even seen the phenomenon just an hour north of London. Beyond greens, even pinks. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Skies grow overcast today, and it'll be in the low 40s tonight, mid-30s, and cloudy. Overnight rain, and that'll likely last through tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. The governor says if implemented, this plan could impact 700,000 taxpayers and help more than 1 million dependents. Breaking down Governor Healy's new $750 million tax reform plan. What it means for the state and for you. That's Radio Boston today at 11. Only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.